Putin expected Ukraine to roll over in days when he launched the full-scale war in February 2022. But this was a tragic misreading of the Ukrainian people because they were prepared to fight for their independence and liberty. The Russian world concept did not have the attractions that Putin and his acolytes seemed to believe. Instead of a small victorious war, Russia has become entangled in a quagmire that has now claimed more Russian lives than 10 years of war in Afghanistan. As it looks ever more likely that Ukraine will emerge victorious, albeit paying a terrible price for that, Russia's future is far less certain. In this episode, we explore what language can tell us about the strategic miscalculations of the Russians, the declining impact of propaganda, and the resilience of Ukrainians. Welcome to Silicon Curtain Podcast. Please like and subscribe if you like the content we produce, and our material is now available on popular podcasting platforms as well, such as Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Ksenia Tirkova is a journalist and a linguist with a PhD in philology, language and literature. She has both Russian and Ukrainian backgrounds and has worked in both countries for private as well as independent media. Her specialist area of research is studying media texts and propaganda. Ksenia is a guest lecturer at American universities and runs a YouTube channel, which offers analysis of current events from the point of view of the nuances of language. Ksenia, thank you so much for joining me on the channel. Uh, thanks for inviting me. Well, we're going to talk a lot, aren't we, about the myths, the Russian propaganda myths and the suppression of the Ukrainian language and culture, not just you know in occupied territories now, but actually over decades or even centuries. Um, but I'd love to learn a little bit more about your background. Uh, I was uh, born in the Moscow region. Uh, so it's a town not far from Moscow, uh, very close, actually. And um, uh, I, um, I graduated Moscow University and I became a journalist uh, in early 2000s. Uh, I I was an intern on one of the most popular, maybe the most popular TV channel that time. It was NTV, NTV channel. Uh, and um, everybody, every journalist that time was dreaming about the job. And uh, I was so happy I got it through internship. I was a student. Uh, and then uh, after I graduated from Moscow University, I uh, defended my thesis in uh, media, media text analysis. Uh, and I analyzed uh, actually TV language, uh, Russian TV language uh, and um, of early 2000s. So uh, and uh, if you uh, if you read it so you can you can see uh, how how actually propaganda uh, was uh, that propaganda um, started. Started, uh, because a lot of people think that uh, propaganda started only with the start of this war. Uh, I mean, in, on, on a big scale. Uh, but actually, uh, it was a gradual process uh, over the last uh, 20 years. Uh, so I was a journalist for that NTV channel that was uh, overtaken uh, by the state company, state oil company Gazprom in 2001. 
And uh, then we started, uh, our team started a new channel that was unfortunately closed in several months because of the censorship. And uh, we started another channel, which was also closed because of the censorship. Then I switched to radio and I worked uh, several years for Echo Moskvy, um, the, the most uh, popular and influential uh, news and talk radio station uh, in Russia, uh, which was recently shut down uh, when the when the war started. Uh, and um, I worked for several uh, TV channels and radio stations at, at the same time, all this time I was uh, teaching at, at the Moscow University, uh, teaching Russian language. Uh, and uh, language was always my uh, one of my main interests. And uh, I wrote a lot about language, um, academical uh, things, as well as uh, um, some journalist uh, journalists analysis and uh, after after that uh, in 2013 I got a job offer uh, from Ukraine it was before the revolution of dignity so they uh, offered me to move to Ukraine only for one year to uh, start a new radio station news and talk radio station uh, and uh, I was very happy to to try it it was very interesting to to start a radio station from scratch uh, and uh, when I moved there in several months, uh, the revolution began, Maidan, uh, and uh, I decided to stay uh, first uh, because I supported Ukraine, and uh, second, uh, I just loved uh, what I was doing. Uh, I loved uh, uh, talking to people on the radio. I was covering all the all the events uh, uh, in Ukraine. I was on air four hours every day uh, for like three or four years, uh, th three years three years. Uh, and then I became, uh, I changed my job. I became a, uh, an executive producer of one of the Ukrainian TV channels. And uh, I was leading the uh, Russian speaking segment of that channel. Uh, and it was in 2016, 2017. And uh, then I got a job offer from Voice of America and I decided to move uh, to the uh, United States. <laughs> And what was the name of the radio uh, channel uh, in Ukraine that you moved to work uh, for? It, it was, the radio channel was called Vesti, and it has the same name as the Russian state TV channel. But uh, in fact, it had nothing to do with the Russian channel. It was just, uh, just a name. And it was a very popular radio station. Uh, people recognized uh, the anchors on the streets. Uh, and uh, uh, it was a, one of, probably, Probably one of my first, uh, one of my uh, best periods in my career. Uh, so I, I loved that time. Uh, but unfortunately, there was uh, uh, there was an ownership issue with this radio station, <laughs> and I don't want to go into details because it will be it will take too long. So the owners were uh, related to the previous government, uh, and uh, a lot of them were a lot of them fled. They escaped Ukraine after the revolution of dignity. They that's why they couldn't. Uh, 
uh, they couldn't tell us what, like what to do. So we we were free because our owners were uh, not in Ukraine anymore. But the project uh, has already started, and a lot of very good, high quality journalists uh, were involved into it. Uh, but then uh, it, it just uh, came to the point uh, when uh, we couldn't continue just because of the ownership, and uh, uh, we understood that at some point uh, the owners. Uh, would be willing to go back to Ukraine and uh, and somehow influence the content of the radio station. So I just decided to to quit and, at some point. And and from what you uh, were describing earlier, I mean, one one question jumps out, and I know it's not on the uh, on the sort of topic we pre agreed. But I've always been fascinated by the idea that you you said a number of uh, stations you worked for were, were closed down uh, in Russia. Uh, and Gazprom, of course, played a significant role in taking over uh, Gusinski's NTV and firing right. a lot of the independent voices. In fact, a lot of people actually fled the country at that point. Um, Kisilov, the, the good Kisilov, not the bad one, obviously, and who is now in Ukraine. But it always fascinated me because, of course, uh, Echo Moscovy was also um, majority owned by Gazprom. And yet that was only shut down last year. Um, how did that manage to keep going? when so many other channels were silenced? Uh, the big uh, percentage of uh, the um, radio station uh, belonged to the journalists. Uh, so maybe uh, uh, that was uh, that played the, the main role in how the radio station survived. Uh, so it was not entirely... Gazprom's radio stations, radio station, uh, part of it, and a significant part part belonged to journalists, and uh, also I think uh, at that time, not now, now um, Russian government uh, and Putin himself, they want to to shut down like every independent media, every resource, uh, but before that, uh, in my opinion, they paid attention only to the big TV channels because. TV, television in Russia was always uh, the most influential tool. Uh, and uh, that's why uh, they, uh, that uh, TV channel Rain always had some problems. Uh, they tried to do something with this channel. Uh, and uh, they, they always were paying attention to the big TV channels because it was the main instrument of uh, how to affect uh, people's minds uh, on a big scale. That's why maybe radio station uh, they they didn't they didn't look at it as uh, as such an influential tool. And also Alexey Venediktov, the head of the radio station, uh, he uh, also played a big role uh, in uh, in what made radio station uh, keep going and surviving uh, because. Uh, he uh, was uh, uh, like a buffer between uh, between the team and the Russian government, uh, and so there were some negotiations took place. I don't know because I don't know I don't know exactly. But uh, his role uh, in uh, in surviving registration surviving was also. Uh, I think significant. We can say uh, like whether it was good or bad, but the fact is uh, that I think he he helped the radio station survive. Well, let's turn to Ukraine because I think one of the big things we're going to be talking about is the multilingual and multicultural identity of Ukraine. 
And that, of course, is getting stronger. But it is a it is a mixed country with with uh, an incredibly complex past, isn't it? And of course, through big parts of history, there has been an effort to suppress the Ukrainian language and culture. Could you sort of broadly describe, uh, you know, how that's played out and, uh, you know, how that has in the past maybe divided the country? Uh, so you, you're right. So Ukrainian language was uh, oppressed for years, decades and centuries. And uh, when I was preparing for our conversation, I found uh, the timeline of uh, repressions against uh, Ukrainian language. And we can now uh, like play a game. Uh, I can uh, can I ask you to pick uh, the decade uh, between uh 1627 and nowadays any decade any decade uh 1690s uh, 1690. Okay, 1696. The Polish same uh, of the Polish-Lithuanian uh, Commonwealth orders to implement the Polish language in courts and institutions of Ukrainian lands under Polish rule. So any uh, pick another one. 1720. 1720. 1720. Uh, Tsar Peter I orders to ban book printing in Ukrainian and to eliminate of Ukrainian texts from church scriptures. 1729, Russian Empire, uh, Tsar Peter II orders to rewrite all government orders from Ukrainian into Russian. And let's pick something from the 19th century. Let's go for 1870, uh, emancipation of the serfs, crucial year. Uh, 1870? 1870, Russian Empire, Russian Minister of Education, Tolstoy, explains that the end goal of the education of all foreigners has to be Russification. And uh, 1876, uh, there was uh, also the law, Ukaz, of uh, Alexander II uh, that prohibited printing and importing from outside the country any Ukrainian language literature, as well as the ban's Ukrainian theatrical performances and the uh, printing of Ukrainian text on sheet music, including national songs. So uh, you can uh, tell that uh, you can pick any decade from 17th century, 18th century, 19th century, and 20th century, and actually 21st century as well. And uh, you will uh, find some repression uh, against some law, uh, against Ukrainian language. Uh, so it's the long history of uh, repression and th that language was always oppressed uh, under uh, some other language like Polish or Russian language, uh, mostly Russian language. And uh, in the Soviet era, uh, Ukrainian language was uh, considered as a uh, uh, you know, like a village language or something like that. Uh, not only Ukrainian, actually, all other languages, uh, but uh, specifically Ukrainian and Belarusian languages, because they are from the same group, they're Slavic languages. So in Russian, uh, in Russia, there was always uh, that attitude that Ukrainian and Belarusian, they're like twisted Russian. Uh, and uh, even I remember when uh, I was uh, in high school, uh, middle high school, 
uh, we were making jokes about, I am embarrassed to say that now, but I do remember those stories about funny Ukrainian words and we were laughing. I mean, it was not uh, like in a mean way, uh, but still uh, we were laughing about uh, at, at some other language and uh, people were looking at it at uh, as uh, some kind of twisted Russian, as I said. Uh, and that was the part of that uh, that uh, colonial uh, attitude mm. uh, to the other republics. Uh, I did um, a big project for that Ukrainian channel I worked for in uh, in, in Ukraine, Hromatsky TV, and uh, that project was dedicated to the situation with uh, different national languages in the post-Soviet uh, countries. Uh, and uh, I was trying to find out uh, how... Um, how the, how those languages uh, were feeling and what was going on after the collapse of uh, the Soviet Union. Uh, and in each country, the situation is very different. Uh, but uh, they all have something in common. Uh, that common thing is that the Russian language was dominating and all other languages were considered as like second sort languages uh, so you couldn't uh, have any career if you uh, spoke only your native language let's say ukrainian or armenian i went to armenia and uh, they told me the same thing uh, so uh, the russian language was the key uh, to your career uh, to your social um, social lift and uh, Mm, that was uh, that attitude Ukraine uh, is uh, fighting uh, with now. They're trying to overcome this past. Uh, and uh, actually in the whole world, we see that now that Ukrainian is getting more and more uh, popular. And the situation uh, in um, post-Soviet uh, post Ukraine uh, with the language was, uh, it was complicated. And you mentioned uh, Belarus and the Belarusian language. That hasn't survived in quite the same way that Ukrainian has, has it? The Russification of that country was in some ways more severe and more damaging because far fewer uh, Belarusians uh, can actually speak, um, you know, the language that's native to that territory. Uh, yes, in Belarus, they have a different situation with the language. I also went to Belarus uh, to work on my project to write uh, about the situation with Belarusian language. I use the adjective Belarusian, not Belarusian, and I will explain why. Uh, because I, I don't want people to think that uh, Belarus is some kind of Russia, like Russia, Belarusia. <laughs> and uh, I want to use the adjective uh, that is created uh, from... Uh, from the name Belarus, so like Belarus, Belarus, Belarusian, uh, and uh, I'm trying to to stick to it because I think uh, Belarusian is uh, more like a Soviet version uh, of uh, of the name for, for the language. Uh, so uh, in in Belarus, uh, they have a, a difficult situation with the national language, and it's considered officially. Uh, it's officially admitted by uh, the um, international organizations uh, that Belarusian language language is dying, uh, like officially, it's a dying language. Uh, and um, it was uh, predominantly 
present uh, in the village uh, in outside the big uh, big cities in Belarus, uh, and uh, people kept it there. But at some point, uh, the national movement uh, for the language started in nineties. And uh, there, there are a lot of activists who are trying to use Belarusian language, who are trying to translate the movies uh, into Belarusian language. But uh, you asked me why uh, the situation is different and the Ukrainian language is uh, in a much more favorable position. Uh, it's because uh, of uh, the referendum that happened uh, in Belarus in 1995 when uh, they gave the equal status to both to Belarusian and to Russian language. And uh, the thing is that uh, Russian, Russian language uh, was already developed, so people used it a lot. And the, the Belarusian language, as I said, was staying uh, mostly uh, in the villages or some activists were speaking Belarusian. It was rare. Uh, or some rare politicians. And uh, so what happened when you have two languages uh, and uh, they are not in equal position, of course, people will uh, choose the language they, uh, they got used to. Uh, and that's why Belarusian language uh, being already oppressed and being already in that, uh, being already not developed enough uh, uh, they just bury, buried it with this uh, with this referendum, uh, giving it the equal status with uh, with the Russian language, and that was a um, I, I maybe not a mistake. It was done intentionally, but uh, that's what happened, and that's why in Ukraine they didn't want to do the same thing because in Russia they uh, in Russian uh, propaganda propagandist media they uh, talked a lot about it about that law language law and uh, that was one of the main narratives why why uh, they don't want to uh, to give that status equal status to, to the russian uh, russian language as as well as ukrainian uh, that's why because they didn't want uh, the same thing that happened in belarus and uh, that, that's the proof what can happen uh, with the language of course uh, ukrainian language was in a better position for many reasons but still uh, if you want to develop your your national language to to if you want your language to stay strong uh you you need to have this language as an official one yeah i mean that that absolutely makes sense and of course traveling around uh russia quite a lot as as i did um you know back in the in the 90s and 2000s you find that in in many of the ex uh sort of soviet countries anyone who was in the administration anyone who was in say the legal profession um you know russian as it were is a sort of first language i mean very similar of course to what the british would have done in in india you would have had to speak the imperial language in order to you know work in any position of power or or uh, generate wealth and this sort of provincial or secondary status uh that was given to non-russian languages that was also extended to the literatures in those languages as well, wasn't it? They were allowed to exist only so far as they were sort of provincial or on a different tier of importance. Um, and that was another way of suppressing identity, wasn't it? Yes, I agree about the literature. And you know what? I will tell you my uh, personal story recently. Uh 
several months ago, like maybe three months ago, I joined uh, the Ukrainian book club. Uh, I wanted to join it before, but I didn't have time and uh, I just have a lot of things to do. So I, I didn't have time for that. But when the war started, I thought this is the time for me to join this Ukrainian, <laughs> Ukrainian reading club. Uh, book club and um, so we read ukrainian literature uh, ukrainian classical literature ukrainian contemporary literature uh, or some for example world literature translated into ukrainian because not uh, all books were translated into ukrainian and some of them are being translated only like now uh, and when i lived in ukraine i saw it uh, how uh, the bookstores were flooded with the ukrainian uh, ukrainian content ukrainian books when i just moved to ukraine in 2012-2013 you go to the i i saw a completely different picture you go to the bookstore and you see a lot of uh, fiction uh, literature uh, in russian of course there were a lot of books in ukrainian like for kids or school books some school books but uh, fiction literature for adults uh, were predominantly russian uh, and uh, that was uh, actually strange, but people didn't see that situation as a strange situation. And when the revolution of dignity happened, uh, things started changing. Uh, the uh, little publishing houses uh, all around the country and the big ones, uh, they started working uh, harder and they started publishing uh, more books in Ukrainian. They started collaborating like with each other and with uh, uh, different Ukrainian writers and a lot of new writers appeared uh, in Ukraine. Uh, and today, by the way, there is a very famous Ukrainian Russian speaking writer, Andrei Kurkov, and uh, his novel, uh, was today, it was today, uh, I read in the news that it was named uh, as one of the books of the year by the New Yorker uh, magazine. Mm. Uh, so now Ukra people start seeing Ukrainian literature. And uh, so in this book club, I started reading uh, Ukrainian literature. And uh, when I just joined it, uh, I started with, they were reading some classical uh, some classical books. Uh, I think it was uh, like two books, two classical books in a row. And uh, when I was reading them, uh, listening to them, like audio versions, I I was listening and I was thinking, but it's not like uh, worse than Chekhov, for example. Why uh, do we see uh, Chekhov uh, or Pushkin or Tolstoy uh, as uh, like something... Um, outstanding in literature and why don't we see uh like uh, kotsubinsky we're reading kotsubinsky uh as uh, as someone equal and we've never uh, we've never talked about it in in that uh, in those terms uh because uh, national we didn't know anything about uh, the literature of uh, um, other post-Soviet countries and then Soviet Union, uh, everybody was reading uh, classical Russian literature. And so I was reading and my eyes were opening. So, so I was thinking like it's, uh, it's uh, why, uh, just a second. <laughs> uh, 
So I was reading and uh, my eyes were kind of uh, opening. Uh, and now I read uh, a lot of Ukrainian books uh, and uh, I just enjoy it in Ukrainian, of course, and we discuss it. And uh, I realize uh, that uh, I didn't know anything about that. Uh, and I think it's very important that now the world is uh, uh, finally uh, finding out the treasures of uh, Ukrainian literature. And that that's an interesting process, isn't it? Because, you know, when I studied Russian and many of the journalists and people I've been speaking to, um, you know, over the last, well, I mean, probably forever, uh, ever since journalists started going and reporting, they'd go to Moscow. And even if they were going to report on Ukrainian affairs, they'd usually be doing it while based out of uh, uh, Moscow. And of course, they'd have, you know, friends, acquaintances, colleagues, and everything gets filtered, doesn't it, through a lens, whether consciously or unconsciously, you look at the world through the eyes of, uh, you know, I'll say the imperialist power. And it does cloud your judgment, uh, uh, not just about Ukraine, but about many territories and countries uh, in the former uh, Soviet Union. Um, do you think that's going to change now? Yes, that's true. We were all uh, looking at the events uh, through that optic. You used a very uh, accurate uh, expression. You you put it uh, in a very good way. Uh, so yes, we we looked through the um, uh, empire uh, optic um, uh, to the uh, at the events uh, in uh, in different post-Soviet countries. Even the names. Uh, for example, the names of the Ukrainian cities. Uh, before the war, uh, a lot of uh, English-speaking uh, media, uh, they uh, would use uh, the Russian versions of, of the names, like Kharkov, uh, Lvov, or Zaporozhye. Uh, but now we see only Ukrainian versions of, the, uh, of those words, of those uh, toponyms. Uh, Kharkiv, Lviv, Zaporizhye. Uh, uh, and uh, if you think about it it's actually not logical at all why would you use the Russian versions of mm. the Ukrainian uh, cities uh, but we, we were using it all yeah. the time and only now we changed it uh, to the um, to the actually Ukrainian Ukrainian versions. If you think about it, it's a weird situation. It was. It used to be a weird situation, uh, and uh, yes, now it's changing. Finally, uh, now we look at the events through Ukrainian eyes, uh, and I think it will help uh, to understand better other countries not only ukraine not only ukraine uh because you know the language uh situation is changing and i noticed that here i live in uh, washington dc and uh, before the war uh, we had uh, like kids uh, camps for kids only in russian uh, i mean uh, camps for the russian speaking families for those who came from different post soviet countries uh, but some of them they speak their own languages like kazakh language for example is uh, very popular or ukrainian language or romanian uh, who came from moldova and so on uh, but uh, we had only camps in, in the russian language uh, but this summer the situation uh, changed and uh, we had 
had camps uh, in Ukrainian language, and I saw the announcement about the camp uh, in Kazakh language, which never happened before. I haven't seen it. Uh, I, I have never seen it. Uh, and uh, I think it's a very significant uh, sign, a sign of a very significant shift uh, in uh, maybe in the Western society and how they see uh, the, uh, the other countries. And also it's a shift in our post-Soviet mentality and the mentality of post-Soviet people uh, because they uh, they, they finally uh, find their identity and they understand who they are. Uh, they understand that uh, they are not uh, post-Soviet people, Russian-speaking people. Uh, they understand, okay, I am Ukrainian, I am uh, from Moldova, or I am uh, from Kazakhstan. They they understand better their identity now. Uh, I think so. It's just my observation. And it's it's an irony, isn't it? Because Putin has accelerated that process through his aggression, brutality. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, it would have happened far slower, potentially. And, you know, one of those big effects, isn't it, is the tearing down of Soviet monuments. And I know there is debate in the West about, uh, you know, how to treat monuments, you know, associated with slavery and all the rest. I think that's different because monuments in the West that have connotations to slavery you know, very few, if any, people would want to resurrect that institution. They might argue that the statue should change, but no one is, you know, that's not an active political debate and no one holds that point of view. Yes, racism exists, but no one is is advocating for the uh, return of, of, of slavery. But the destruction of Soviet-era monuments, that feels much more live, doesn't it? Because they represent... Uh, an occupation uh, uh, they represent um, an imperial tendency which is still part of official government policy so they're not just sort of dead monuments from the past they're living mm -hmm. representations of a country which still has oh, of know, course yes because ambitions. it's painful to see them for for a lot of people it's painful to see those monuments because there are uh, a lot of people who were repressed uh, during soviet era and uh, for example for crimean tatars i think associations with uh, uh, soviet era and especially uh, with stalin uh, because in russia uh, they glamorize stalin and uh, while in ukraine they're getting rid of uh, the soviet monuments in russia uh, they put the monuments uh, of stalin and now as far as i remember there are 150 monuments or more uh, for stalin uh, all over russia uh, and so they keep doing it. And, uh, for example, in Crimean Tatar, uh, the popularity that was uh, accused uh, in uh, the collaboration of the collaboration with Nazis and the whole nation was uh, repressed and uh, uh, sent uh, to different, uh, different uh, locations uh, far away from their home. Uh, for them, of course, that Soviet past is uh, is very painful. And that's a, an interesting uh, topic because, of course, you know, even now when you listen to Western commentators, they say, well, you know, Ukraine is taking back territories that are rightfully theirs and resetting to 
the position as it was in 2014, there's almost still an assumption in the West that Crimea somehow is Russian, that somehow um, that uh, is 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 less um, valid to take back than, say, Kherson. But I think it's a bit of a myth, isn't it? I mean, we don't know what people in Crimea think necessarily. There can be no oh, of course, real especially social now, research. It's very hard to say what people think now, uh, because a lot of people are afraid of saying anything uh, on the territories that are under Russia's control. Uh, but uh, Crimea was always a very specific region of Ukraine. That is true. Uh, but uh, there were always a lot of pro-Ukrainian people there. First of all, Crimean Tatars, they were always uh, independent and uh, pro-Ukrainian and they, they, uh, they are done with <laughs> Russian Empire and Soviet Union and they don't want uh, to be under uh, Russia's influence because Russia was uh, oppressed them and persecuted them uh, from uh, 18th century, actually, from uh, uh, from Yekaterina the Great. Uh, they were oppressed from, from that time. Uh, and um, uh, Crimean Tatars were actually one of the first... Uh, uh, first activists who went on the streets uh, before the annexation of Crimea and after the annexation of Crimea, uh, they went on the streets to show their position and uh, to, to express their pro-Ukrainian uh, position. And uh, Crimean Tatars have uh, uh, helped, uh, I think, shape Ukraine, Ukraine's uh, sense of uh, self uh, multi-ethnic and multi-confessional and multilingual uh, place. Uh, because uh, they speak Crimean Tatar, and by the way, the language is uh, was all also uh, oppressed uh, in different uh, periods of time uh, because they made uh, them to switch uh, from Arabic to Latin, and then from Latin to Cyrillic, uh, Cyrillic letters, Kirillica, uh, and uh, uh, so in Crimea, um, among Crimean Tatars, you can find people, uh, old people who had to switch uh, from to different alphabet two times in their life. Uh, so first, because they first were forced uh, to switch from Arabic to Latin, and uh, uh, they learned it. And then uh, in in thirties, uh, they were forced to switch to Cyrillic. Uh, and uh, when there, there was a wave of recification, uh, and so that you can find the person who had to switch two times, and it's uh, it's difficult. Uh, so uh, Crimean Tatars were a very strong uh, part of uh, Ukrainian society that uh, were always uh, always against uh, that Russian um, Russian oppression, and they didn't want to be uh, to be in Russia. Uh, and also, there were a lot of uh, different uh, other activists uh, and pro-Ukrainian uh, pro-Ukrainian moods in Crimea were pretty strong uh, although there were of course uh, pro-Russian people in Crimea and uh, maybe uh, it was because uh, Ukraine uh, they they didn't pay much attention uh, as actually other countries uh, other post-Soviet countries they uh, didn't pay much attention uh, to how influential Russian propaganda was. Uh, they told me the same thing, for example, in Estonia. Uh, they started, they launched um, 
Russian-speaking channel only after the annexation of Crimea, because they realized that there is a pro-Russian part of the society in Estonia, and they are still watching Russian TV and all those propaganda talk shows and Solovyov and Kisilov, and they are under the influence. And so they launched that Russian-speaking TV channel only in 2014. And uh, in uh, in Ukraine, till the last moment, they also didn't pay much attention to uh, to that role, strong role of Russian propaganda, uh, which is well done uh, technologically uh, and uh, professionally, I mean, from the technology and uh, po point of view of how, how they make it uh, on TV. Uh, and so they um, they did maybe didn't see it as a threat. And so they uh, didn't uh, do anything with that. Uh, and they started doing something with about Russian propaganda only after the re revolution of dignity and uh, after the annexation of Crimea. And I think we in the West almost certainly underestimate the effectiveness of Russian propaganda. Um, you know, when we see various memes and clips shared, usually it's to sort of poke fun at it and to suggest that it's sort of primitive and laughable. And yet, when, you know, I watch the news, you see a lot of Russian propaganda narratives, historical myths and tropes almost unconsciously appearing. Uh, through sometimes fairly sort of sloppy and unconscious journalism. At other times, of course, you'll have activists on the hard left and the hard right who are actively using and weaponizing uh, those narratives that come out of the Russian system. Um, I mean, do you think we need to get more serious about tackling uh, Russian propaganda, the techniques and the narratives? I think actually Western countries are getting uh, already more serious about that. Uh, but uh, you are right uh, that uh, uh, in the Western countries, uh, people are very, <laughs> very, I would say, naive of, in a good way because they are used uh, to a high standard journalism. Uh, and you probably know a famous uh, Russian-British journalist, uh, Masha Slonim, uh, and she, she lives in Great Britain. Uh, and she, I remember she told me, um, I had an interview with her, and she told me that uh, we talked about Russia Today uh, channel, TV channel. And uh, she said that, you know, uh, in Great Britain, the audience is very naive because people are spoiled with uh, high quality news content. So they don't even assume that the journalist can lie. And uh, they, they, they say, well, they're just giving us like different uh, point of view and uh, it's normal. We, we shouldn't uh, shut it down or we shouldn't uh, uh, like consider it, uh, consider banning some propagandist channels because we don't see it as propaganda. They're just giving us a different point of view. Well, we don't think that way. We disagree, but you need to have uh, some pluralism and uh, different, uh, different opinions. And 
and uh, I think that what was happening in the mo in the most uh, Western countries because people were spoiled uh, with a good content because in the post-Soviet countries, uh, although people believe uh, believe propaganda in Russia, for example, but at the same time, it's a very interesting phenomenon. There is a picture I can send it to you later. It's like a meme picture meme. A man is sitting in front of the in front of TV. Russian Russian guy sitting in front of TV uh, and saying, "I um, I know you are lying, but I believe you." Uh, so the <laughs> Russian audience, they uh, it always the people are always uh, aware aware that uh, journalists can lie. Everybody is lying. Uh, officials are lying. Journalists are lying. Uh, but at the same time, they are ready to be uh, like tricked. They know it can happen. So they are always like on a high alert, but at the same time, they believe in that propaganda. That is a very interesting phenomenon. I don't know how people combine it, uh, those qualities in uh, in their heads, uh, but it's interesting. Uh, but I think now uh, with the help of uh, Ukraine and Ukraine's messages to the Western countries, uh, people started understand better the narratives uh, of Russian propaganda and how sometimes Times they might be hidden, uh, they might be covered with some uh, like beautiful words, and uh, they now they understand it better, and they understand better the threat uh, that goes from uh, Russian propaganda. And of course, a lot of that propaganda uses social media platforms. Uh, it seeks to sort of weaponize them, and has actually used them remarkably effectively. And we seem to have you know not that much defense against them. But I think what you said about Ukraine is fascinating because, of course, it has a very strong tech industry and that has grown incredibly rapidly since 2014. And through the interviews I've done, I've now got the impression that Ukraine is at the forefront, not just of developing techniques to counter propaganda, but also at the forefront of uh, media literacy, training the population en masse to think critically about news sources, as well as developing various technologies and techniques to try and identify, uh, you know, fake news from from genuine. Yeah, there are a lot of resources now in Ukraine, and uh, uh, they have very good media uh, journalists, media specialists who write about media and who analyze uh, the content, and they're very self-critical. Uh, you know, there is a, a website called uh, Detector Media. Uh, it's a watchdog of uh, Ukrainian TV, and uh, they do a lot of analysis of uh, Ukrainian media, of Ukraine, uh, Ukrainian TV specifically, and uh, I, I read them um, quite often, uh, and I noticed uh, that, well, I knew that about Ukrainian people, so it was not a surprise. They are very self-critical, so they can, during the war, uh, even during the war, they can uh, criticize themselves for uh, doing some wrong things on in the media um, field environment. Uh, so, for example, uh, they analyzed uh, that national marathon. They have a TV marathon. So uh, all the channels are united, and uh, now they have uh, like a one channel. Uh, on which uh, different channels are represented on the certain uh, TV on the certain time slots, uh, but it's like the one broadcasting. Uh, 
they united for that TV marathon from the beginning of the war. Uh, different channels belong to different people because, you know, in Ukraine, they had this problem with oligarchization. Uh, because different oligarchs uh, had different channels, but the, now they are united. Uh, and so the analysts were watching the TV marathon and they noticed some things uh, that they criticized uh, in that analysis I read. Uh, so, for example, they noticed, they counted time-wise uh, how much time uh, was dedicated to the representatives of different political parties. And, of course, they found out uh, that the Zelensky's party was represented uh, more. Uh, and uh, they uh, pointed out that you see it's not equal. We don't have uh, like equal positions for different political parties. They're not, they're not represented equally on, on TV. Uh, and uh, also I, I talked with some of them with, with those media analysts and they say uh, that uh, of course, on the one hand, it's good that they have this uh, United Broadcasting, but at the same time, uh, it might be a threat uh, to the freedom of speech after the war, uh, because it's controlled by government now during the war. And uh, we know that the war is uh, already like almost nine months uh, and uh, people can get used to it, to like one position because before they have a variety of different channels and positions and people get, can get used to it and uh, that is something uh, that uh, they need to keep in mind after the war ends uh, after after the war ends so they they uh, they should think about it and how to uh, how to prevent uh, that influence of the government uh, on the TV content. So they uh, they are discussing it all the time, how they can do things better, and they are being self-critical, which I've never seen in Russia. I can't imagine an article in Russia uh, analyzing uh, the content of uh, main TV channels and criticizing this or that channel uh, for not giving... Uh, giving a word to both sides or something like that. It's something uh, fantastic for me. Uh, but in Ukraine, it's a very common practice. And that that's an interesting sort of loop back because I know we're coming towards the, the sort of end and I've still got a million questions. So I think we'll have to probably have another session at some point. Um, but it, it ties very interestingly back to what you were talking about um, in the early 2000s uh, and with NTV because... We know that in the sort of informational autocracy that uh, the Russia was until until the war started, when you know all the alternative voices were sort of snuffed out, um, a certain level of criticism was tolerated, but there were certain no-go areas, weren't there? So you could talk about certain things, criticize certain things, but certain people, certain institutions were untouchable. And of course, when NTV was shut down. One of the first things that was shut, um, you know, closed off was political satire, wasn't it? Yes, um, yes, that's a puppet uh, show. Uh, Kukle, Viktor yes, Shenderovich, which uh, I used yes. to watch in, in Russia, yeah. <laughs> but, but all forms of political satire were one of the first things to be repressed by Putin in the very early 2000s. And I think that's very telling, isn't it? If a society or a government can't tolerate satire, it tells you something about their... True intentions. 
Yes, of course. And, and uh, in the early 2000s, I was very young. I was 20 years old. And uh, at that time already, I understood uh, I understood the situation. I understood the threat of uh, Putin's regime, potential, potential threat. Uh, because although the situation with media was more or less uh, okay, at the same time, we as journalists we felt that threat we felt that uh, the uh, that area of uh, freedom freedom of speech uh, is uh, shrinking uh, and uh, i like to compare it and i did it a lot of times so maybe you heard it uh, you you heard it before but i like to compare it to the high school contest uh, called uh, dancing in the newspaper when uh, the couples are dancing on the whole newspaper then you fold it and you dance on the uh, half of a newspaper then on the quarters and then one eighth uh, and so on and until people start like just falling down and the winner was uh, the winning couple is that couple that still keeps uh, dancing uh, and uh, that what was happening with uh, with the free media in Russia because we uh, uh, those who wanted to work for independent media those who wanted to stay independent uh, they had uh, to find those little islands of uh, where we can dance uh, on <laughs> but at some point uh, they disappear at some point you try to find one one channel it's shut down another channel is shut down and uh, it's uh, like less and less and less and at some point you find out that uh, you just can't work at all and that's what happened after after the war started well i think i think this might have to be um you know the last question but i think it's a good place to to end and you've talked about the sort of diversity of ukrainian culture the fact that it's probably more vibrant than it's ever been and the publishing revolution that started to translate a lot of works internationally what do you see as the future evolution of ukrainian culture and adversely we see the repression in russia the fact that many in the middle class um have been fleeing and leaving i mean those who would naturally be you know the consumers of uh, of, of innovative culture do we see the two countries on a different trajectory, one getting stronger and evolving and Russian culture in some way getting getting weaker and more repetitive, you know, um, mm -hmm. repetitive and less innovative? I think uh, Ukraine is going to the future. So Ukraine's destination is the future and Russia's destination is uh, the past. Uh, and we talked already about glamorization of Stalin era and uh, they glamorize uh, the era of Ivan the Terrible and Peter the Great. So all uh, they take all the uh, they get all the inspiration from the past. Uh, they don't get inspiration from the future, uh, from some uh, plans for the country. And uh, even if they explain when they explain some events, for example, how they explained that uh, retreat, Kherson retreat. Uh, they explained it with the help of the uh, propaganda of 18th century, of 1709, uh, when uh, they said that Peter the Great, well, everything is according to the plan, 
we have to retreat. Well, they, they don't say the word retreat, they call it maneuver. Uh, so they we, we have to do this maneuver uh, because you remember Peter the Great, he did the same with Poltava and he won the war. So they, they explain uh, current events uh, with the events uh, that happened three, uh, 300 years ago. Uh, and we see that Russia, uh, Russia's head is turned to the past and uh, Ukraine uh, is uh, going to the to the future. And I think Ukrainian culture and Ukrainian language has a great future. I just talked to um, and do, I just talked to Duolingo scientist, Duolingo representative, and I made a piece for Voice of America about the popularity of Ukrainian language. And they say since the war started, the popularity of Ukrainian language keeps um, stays uh, stable. Uh, so it jumped from uh, the bottom of the list of languages to like 10th or 15th position and it stays there so people keep learning ukrainian uh, people watch uh, ukrainian movies people start uh, reading ukrainian books and know more about ukrainian writers uh, and um, yes i think uh, ukraine ukrainian culture in general uh, has a big uh, has a big future and even those parts in the east, uh, Kharkiv, Dnipro and others and uh, Mariupol, uh, I've met a lot of people now from, from those areas. And of course, Russian is their primary language, but almost everyone I've met has a working knowledge of Ukrainian. They'll be able to read it and understand it and watch the television in that language, even if they're not necessarily fluent in speaking it. But there's a big move now, isn't there? For people yes, a lot of people are switching to... to Ukrainian. There was a big wave after the Revolution of Dignity mm. already, uh, but now uh, they have uh, even the, the bigger wave uh, of switching uh, into Ukrainian. And a lot of people who were um, who considered themselves uh, as Russian speaking, uh, they uh, say now that they are Ukrainian speaking. They switch to Ukrainian and they never uh, got back to Russian. I mean, they still can use it, but they they use Ukrainian. Uh, in their everyday communication uh, predominantly. Uh, but for the whole world, I'm not talking about uh, Ukraine itself, I'm, I'm talking about the whole world. The interest uh, to uh, Ukrainian language and culture is uh, is huge now. And uh, I think it's not just situational interest. It will it will stay uh, for, for the, I think it will stay stable uh, because Ukrainian culture is very interesting and Ukrainian cuisine is uh, delicious. <laughs> and humor uh, so as well. I, I think it will stay stable <laughs> and ukrainian humor people are becoming acquainted with it for the first time uh you know very sometimes dark humor um especially in the sort of memes and the stoicism and the resilience people are showing i think uh that ukrainian identity is coming out of the shadows and and coming onto the world stage in a way it's never done before yes absolutely mm -hmm. Well, that's a, that's a great place to end. That's probably the most positive ending of any of the videos I've done uh, this year so far. Uh, and it's good to look forward and look forward to something positive in what is uh, obviously a, a very difficult time. Um, Ksenia, I'm hugely uh, grateful to you for spending time. I know it's very late uh, um, it, where we both are now, but uh, it's been hugely enjoyable. Thank you so much for having me.